So we are continuing our discussion of this uh, particular verse by His Holiness the Dalai Lama, which uh, explains how we go from the understanding of the two truths, the understanding of the four truths, to the uh, having confidence in the three jewels of refuge. And what we've seen is that the two truths talk about the uh, how things actually exist and function, in other words, reality. And this is referring to uh, in terms of relative or conventional truth, that what actually appears to us is that uh, things arise from causes and conditions. In other words, if we saw reality, this is what we would see. But uh, unfortunately, very often we don't see things that way. And on the deepest level, things do not exist in the impossible ways that our confusion projects onto them. For instance, that uh, things arise by themselves independently of any causes, conditions, or parts, or anything else. So this is the foundation, and the Four Noble Truths are speaking about when we are confused about reality, and when we actually see and understand reality correctly. So when we are confused about reality, then uh, that acts as a, a cause of suffering. So it causes the second noble truth, the actual sufferings that we experience is the first noble truth. And on the other hand, if we can see reality and understand it and stay focused in it, on it all the time, then we would have the third noble truth that's a true stopping of suffering because we've gotten rid of its cause and that understanding is the true path that will uh, bring about that true stopping and when we don't understand reality when we are acting on the basis of uh, unawareness and confusion then we perpetuate our uncontrollably recurring rebirth Whereas if we get rid of that uh, unawareness and confusion, then we can reverse in the sense of get out of or stop that samsaric rebirth. Now the third line of this verse, brought on by valid cognition, then our conviction that the three refuges are fact becomes firm. The three refuges are referring to as I mentioned in the introductory lecture, the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. These are the Sanskrit words. And the uh, Buddha and Buddhas are obviously those who uh, have reached enlightenment and teach us how to do that. Dharmas are their teachings. Sangha is the highly realized community. That's one level of understanding them. But uh, there's also a deeper meaning of them and in terms of uh, the deeper meaning Dharma is referring to the actual attainment and it's the attainment of the third and fourth noble truths so the third noble truth as you remember is a true stopping of suffering and its causes and so when we attain that we attain liberation from samsara from uncontrollably recurring rebirth and the fourth noble truth is that understanding that brings about that truth, the attainment of that true stopping, and that understanding that we have as a result of the true stopping. Now, this is known as a refuge. So, what does a refuge actually mean? Refuge is something that protects us, so, it protects us from suffering. And if we were to attain this deepest dharma, if we were to attain this true stopping and true understanding, true pathway understanding, then we would prevent ourselves from experiencing suffering. So it's not that there is uh, someone else has attained this, and if we just entrust ourselves to someone else who has attained it, then we will, in a sense, be saved. The uh, so-called Abrahamic religions. This is referring to Judaism, then Christianity, then Islam. These are what are known as uh, history-oriented religions. 
In other words, in each of these uh, three religions, you have a historical figure who, in a historical event, had some sort of revelation from God, whether it's Moses or Jesus or Muhammad, and they revealed this truth, and they are the final word. So we can't do what they did. What we need to do is to have faith in them, and this is of course described in different ways in the different uh, uh, Abrahamic religious uh, traditions, but through faith in them, then we will be saved from our suffering. So either faith in them personally or faith in what they have taught, what they have revealed. So this historical event of God giving the Ten Commandments to Moses or Jesus revealing the New Testament or Muhammad revealing the uh, Quran. This is a very significant historical event and is at the center of these Abrahamic religions. When we talk about Indian religions, these can be spoken of in terms of Dharma religions. That is Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism. Then uh, this is completely different. The historical fact of Buddha or Krishna or Mahavira, founder of Jainism, is not the central event. But rather, we ourselves, everybody, can attain the liberation state of these great beings. We ourselves can attain liberation and enlightenment if we speak now just in the Buddhist context. But these other religions talk about liberation as well, other Dharmic religions. This is one of the most fundamental differences between Abrahamic religions, our Western religions, including Islam, and Indian religions most fundamental difference. So, when we look at uh, these refuges, it's very important not to look at them through the projection of our Western Abrahamic religions. It isn't that Buddha was the only one who attained enlightenment, and now if I believe in Buddha, I will be saved and follow what Buddha said. It's not like that. So, to avoid that, I like to avoid using the uh, word refuge as a translation term because it tends to give a slightly passive flavor. You just go for refuge, which means, oh, Buddha saved me, and you're saved. So that's not really the flavor of Buddhism. We're talking about when you have a correct understanding of Buddhism. But rather, I speak about a safe direction. In other words, uh, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha are indicating a direction for us to go in, for us to attain what a Buddha has attained ourselves. And although Buddha has taught a way for us to be able to protect ourselves, we have to put it into practice, and it's really our efforts and our own attainment that will protect us from suffering that we avoid suffering. So when we talk about the deepest dharma, jewel or gem, however you want to call it, it's uh, something which is rare and precious, is the way the Tibetans translate gem here. So it's rare, it's precious. What we're talking about is this actual state of true stopping of suffering and the attainment of a true pathway of mind that will bring that about and result from it. So this is something that we need to attain ourselves. Which means that we need to be convinced that it's actually possible to attain this. Therefore we had this discussion of the two truths and the four truths to help us to understand that it is possible to attain it, that there is such a thing as liberation and uh, how it can come about. And the Buddhas are those who have attained it in full, so not just Shakyamuni Buddha, but many Buddhas. And they have taught us, indicated ways in which uh, we can actually attain that ourselves, indicated in two ways, one with their teachings, and the other just with the way that they are, based on their understanding. That, by the way, is a very important point. We can demonstrate and help others to learn 
both with verbal teachings, but also by our example of being a living example of what we are teaching. So this is another indication that we're talking about not just some abstract teaching, but people who actually embody it when they teach it. And they inspire us to follow their example. And the Arya Sangha, the third gem, is... You know, some people think that why do you need this third gem? Isn't the Buddha and the Dharma enough? And although the monastic community, monks and nuns, represent the Sangha, that's not the actual Sangha gem. Just like the statues and paintings represent the Buddhas and the books represent the uh, Dharma. But that's not the actual uh, deepest point. It's just a representation as a uh, symbol of something that represents the Buddha Dharma and Sangha statues, paintings, books and uh, monks and nuns help us to uh, make a focus for showing respect because it's not so easy to show respect to something a little bit more abstract but much more deeper meaning to Buddha Dharma and Sangha the Sangha gem is very important so why? Sangha is referring to the Aryas, those who have seen non-conceptually four noble truths based on the two truths, relative and deepest truth. They have cognized or perceived these non-conceptually and as a result they have achieved a little bit of uh, true stopping and a little bit of true pathway mind. Not the whole thing yet, but part that point is very important because uh, if we look at the Four Noble Truths, how are they defined? They're defined as Noble Truths, the Arya Truths. These are what Aryas, those who have non-conceptual cognition of reality, see as true. So what does that tell us? That tells us that, uh, first of all, it's not only Buddhas who uh, perceive all of this and uh, attain true stoppings and uh, true pathway minds. Rather, it is a gradual process. And even before attaining liberation or enlightenment, that we start to chip away, means get rid of varying aspects of the true sufferings because we're getting rid of true causes. It's a gradual process and it starts long before becoming a Buddha or becoming an Arhat, a liberated being. So this gives us uh, an example that is a little bit easier to relate to than the example of a Buddha because the Arya Sangha still have some problems and so on, still have uh, some suffering. They're not free from uh, uncontrollably recurring rebirth but they're free of part of it. So it's easier to relate to. And so uh, it gives us encouragement and uh, inspiration that gradually, step by step, if we go in this safe direction of achieving true stoppings and true pathway minds, that we can get there to the ultimate goal, liberation and enlightenment. So even if uh, we're not able to go all the way yet, to liberation and enlightenment, we will free ourselves already of some degree of suffering because we will free ourselves of some degree of the unawareness that causes the suffering. It's just a matter of how, how much we can stay completely focused on reality. If you're still an Arya, you can't stay focused on it all the time. If you're a Buddha, you stay focused on it all the time. Liberation is liberation from uncontrollably recurring rebirth, and with that attainment we become what's known as an arhat, a liberated being. But enlightenment is more than that. So not only are we free of what's called the emotional obscuration, so these disturbing emotions and this uh, unawareness of how we exist and how everything exists, but uh, we're also free of what's called the cognitive obscurations. In other words, because of the habits 
of believing in these projections of what's impossible impossible ways of uh, knowing our mental activity continues to make these projections and we believe that they correspond to reality and then we get our disturbing emotions when we gain liberation we gain that by stopping believing that these appearances these so called deceptive appearances correspond to reality so you stop believing in it this is garbage It appears like that, but it's not the way that things actually are. So still our perception, uh, what appears to us, is limited. Still things tend to appear to exist in, in a sense, in boxes, you know, everything encapsulated by itself in plastic. But we know that that's not the way things exist. Even on a very simple level, if you think in terms of uh, uh, atomic physics, you know, you have the atoms and you have force fields and energy fields and things like that. There's no solid concrete line around any object that says, you know, on this side of the line, you know, there's the object and on that side of the line there isn't. So things are not as concrete as uh, they appear to us. But if we get rid of these cognitive obscurations, what is causing us to uh, make these deceptive appearances, our mental activity to make these deceptive appearances, then mind stops projecting them and we gain enlightenment. When we gain enlightenment, we see the interconnectedness of absolutely everything simultaneously. And what is most relevant is that uh, then we're able to see with each individual person all the causes and conditions which have affected the way they are now and we would see what are the results of anything that we would teach them so what would be the most skillful way to help to lead them to liberation and enlightenment themselves so when we talk about aryas we're not just talking about the bodhisattva aryas the bodhisattva aryas are the ones that are aiming for enlightenment we're talking about those aryas that are also aiming for liberation only liberation so when we talk about the three jewels in the context of safe direction or refuge we're talking about those that are aiming either for only liberation or also for liberation and enlightenment it's not just uh, bodhisattvas aiming for enlightenment so anyway if we understand two truths and on the basis of that we understand the four truths how we get into samsara and control of the recurring rebirth and how we can get out of that if we understand that then we become firmly convinced that the uh, all the deepest Dharma gem, deepest Dharma jewel, actually exists. It's a fact. There is such a thing. We understand very clearly that this uh, confusion, which brings about these uh, deceptive appearances of what's impossible, that this confusion is not a innate feature or characteristic of our mental activity. Why? because you can get rid of it if you focus on the exact opposite of unawareness in other words you focus with awareness of how of the two truths of how things exist then you don't have this uh, these deceptive appearances and you certainly don't believe in them so if you stay focused on this uh, awareness this uh, true path you stay focused on uh, that all the time then you will have a true stopping of the unawareness or ignorance and this is backed by logic you can corroborate it that uh, this conforms to reality and it produces this effect you no longer have that up and down suffering of unhappiness and ordinary happiness you no longer have uncontrollably recurring existence so now you could object and you could say well if you stayed focused on unawareness all the time then you wouldn't have understanding or awareness so uh, which one is stronger staying focused all the time with unawareness or staying focused that does not conform with reality or staying uh, focused on awareness which does conform with reality so from the point of view of analysis when you investigate 
then there's nothing substantial backing up our unawareness, these uh, deceptive projections, whereas uh, logic does support the, uh, the correct understanding. Things do arise from causes and conditions that don't exist all by themselves, popping out of nowhere. Plus, if we stay focused with uh, awareness, correct understanding all the time, it does produce its effect that we no longer experience suffering or samsaric rebirth. On the other hand, if we stay focused on unawareness, confusion all the time, that also produces its effect, which is suffering. So, I mean, here we have the Four Noble Truths again. So, which, what are we aiming for? Do you want to suffer forever, all the time? If you do, then stay focused on, on awareness, and you'll suffer all the time. Yeah, welcome to it. But if you want to be free from it, which is uh, the goal of the spiritual path, then it's perfectly clear that you have to stay focused with awareness, with understanding all the time, based on reality. So, with this way of approaching the topic of uh, refuge, then we gain, as it says, it's brought on by valid cognition and our conviction that these three refuges are fact, then it becomes firm. So, we are no longer presuming that if I go in this direction, it will free me from uh, suffering. So we're not basing our refuge, you know, our spiritual path, on just presuming that it's true, which is just a, a good guess. But it's based on valid cognition. Uh, and that guess would be based on faith, because my teachers say so, and so on. We are working on the basis of valid cognition, coming from, basically, inferential uh, understanding, logic because uh, if we, uh, there are two ways of having valid cognition. There is uh, through inference and, or logic, and then there is straightforward uh, cognition. Be like uh, seeing or hearing or experiencing it uh, ourselves. The problem with that second one is that you have to be very, very advanced before you're ever going to experience it yourself. So where do we start before that? That's why we, we start with uh, inference as the basis for valid cognition. Now we have the uh, fourth line, inspire me to implant this root of the pathway minds to liberation. So when we talk about the uh, pathway minds to uh, liberation, this can be presented in many, many ways. One of the ways of uh, presenting it is according to the uh, three scopes of motivation, what's often known by the Tibetan term Lam Rim, graded stages. This is uh, aiming for three progressive goals. So, first goal is to avoid worse rebirths and to gain better rebirths. In order to be, we want to gain the better rebirth states that have much less suffering because uh, then we will have the optimum conditions for being able to continue on the spiritual path. If we are reborn as a cockroach, there's not much that we can do in terms of our spiritual development during a lifetime as a cockroach. So, we already saw that we need to, uh, in order to avoid worse rebirths, we have to get rid of our unawareness or confusion about relative truth, which is cause and effect, because we act the main cause for worse rebirths is destructive behavior, and you act destructively because you don't think that it has any, you're unaware of the consequences of that. Or you think that it has the reverse consequences, it will make you happy. And the intermediate scope is to aim for liberation from all three types of suffering, unhappiness or ordinary happiness, the uncontroll, the basis for that are uncontrollably recurring rebirth. So for that we need to gain, we get, need to get rid of true stopping of the uh, unawareness about deepest uh, truth, deepest reality, so voidness. But not just uh, gain the awareness of voidness, we need to gain the understanding of all four noble truths. But 
very difficult to stay focused on all of that simultaneously all the time. So we need to uh, go further. The advanced scope is to attain the enlightened state of a Buddha so that we can help everybody else. So while staying focused on deepest truth to understand fully relative truth, only a Buddha can stay focused on the two truths simultaneously. Yeah, all the time. So it's very, very interesting. If we uh, look deeper at this line, it says that that understanding of from the two truths, the four truths, from the four truths, the three refuges, that this is the root of these three scopes, the initial, intermediate, and advanced scopes of uh, motivation and the practices and insights that will lead to these three goals. It says this is the root. Right? Root is not a seed. Root is what gives stability and gives strength to a plant. So if we are convinced on the basis of logic that these three goals are attainable, that they exist, and it's not unrealistic, it's totally realistic that we can attain that, then of course that gives us a stability that supports the entire spiritual path toward that goal. But in other presentations, we find uh, very, and these presentations are perhaps more frequent than this presentation, we find that the root of these three, path, you know, three scopes is the healthy relation with the spiritual teacher. That's what you find in, all, in I think, all of the Lamrim texts, at least the ones that I'm familiar with. And that healthy relation with the spiritual teacher is the root of the entire spiritual path in the sense that you gain inspiration from the teacher and that inspiration is what gives you the strength and the energy to be able to continue toward these goals. So here again we find the uh, two variations of how one can proceed on the spiritual path in uh, a stable type of way. One way is having as our uh, root, our strength, the uh, relation with the spiritual teacher, the inspiration, and so on. So that uh, based on that, then we use a type of logic which is that my teacher then is a valid source of information therefore what the teacher says about that it is possible to attain enlightenment is correct no reason why the teacher would make that up so although there is a certain type of logic that is involved here but if you look at it from the point of view of how most people experience it it's experienced more on an emotional type of uh, level. You're so emotionally inspired by the teacher that this gives you the strength to go on the path. So this is similar to these two ways of developing bodhicitta that mentioned before. The first, the relative bodhicitta, you know, you're so drawn by wanting to help others that you're drawn to enlightenment. And it's only after that that you become totally convinced that it is possible to achieve it. On the other hand, reflecting the mode of practice with which uh, we first develop this deepest bodhicitta, so we develop conviction in voidness, and on the basis of that, and the way that uh, we just described in our uh, verse here, that we gain conviction that the goal is possible to achieve, then we develop the more emotional side of actually working toward enlightenment, opening up our heart, etc. So both are valid ways of approaching the spiritual path. And it all depends on what our basic scope or capacity is. The way that it is uh, described in the uh, text is those of uh, very sharp faculties and intellect. They would find it more suitable to their personality to rely on this logical presentation and those that are not as sharp in their intellect in other words they work more on an emotional uh, dimension for them what is what works best is this relying on the inspiration from the teacher and the emotion that is developed in terms of 
love and compassion that's the basis and in many ways I think that we need to balance both approaches I have an article on my website that I wrote which deals with approaching the Dharma intellectual, emotional and devotional so there are three ways that we have the devotional aspect to it and I think it's very important to uh, not put down other ways of approaching the Buddhist path just because it is more comfortable for us to approach it in one particular style in one particular way because if we are to develop ourselves fully in terms of all our potentials and so on we need a balance of all three approaches so this is a basic presentation of this particular verse in this particular prayer by His Holiness the uh, Dalai Lama so a lot of meaning can be milked out of this as my teacher always used to say you can milk like milking from a cow a lot of meaning from all the words uh, now we have time for questions um, this is the question about practical application of Four Noble Truths for instance, if uh, a friend of mine is uh, worrying or something like that, has problems, uh, I can give advice, uh, take it easy, uh, relax, uh, don't take it too seriously. And uh, so this is kind of remainder that I can give to other people or perhaps to myself. But in terms of our selfishness, for instance, there is a situation when I have emotions, I have selfishness, and uh, I need to actually do something to deal with people. Is there some sort of reminder to remind myself, maybe mantra or some phrase, some word, in order not to forget so I can kind of keep this remainder in my mind and not to forget that I in all situations need to see where is the projection of my selfish mind and where is the reality? According to Tsongkhapa, great Tibetan master, he says that except for when we are focused non-conceptually on voidness at all other times our mental activity is projecting impossible ways of existing so deceptive appearances that that's happening all the time so the object of refutation is every moment of our experience other than that deep meditation so you don't have to go far to find it it's the appearance of every moment how things appear to you so there are many things, little aids that can help us to deconstruct the uh, appearance that we perceive I outlined them in this uh, Developing Balanced Sensitivity this uh, ebook that I have on my website it's also a published book so one image that uh, is helpful is to pop the balloon of the fantasy but you have to do this in a non-dualistic way it's not as though there's a separate me with a pin and here's the appearance and you pop the balloon it's just that the uh, balloon is popped which is the exaggeration of uh, how things exist you need to recognize what is this deceptive appearance the deceptive appearance can be that you are so horrible or this situation is so horrible and we don't even see it within the context of all the causes and conditions and everybody else has something similar and so on it just becomes this horrible thing and poor me, I'm suffering from this so you just imagine that balloon pops I know you are a, uh, a filmmaker and so uh, you could imagine that in a scene in a movie that uh, sort of graphically the whole appearance on the screen sort of just explodes and, and then you have something else that uh, is behind it, the uh, reality so this could be a useful image for someone like yourself uh, another image that I use in this uh, balanced sensitivity is that it's what we're doing is like a book opened with uh, two pages uh, one page here is uh, for me suffering from this horrible situation and the other page is of uh, this terrible situation that I can't handle or is so horrible and uh, so it's like a uh, horrible fairy tale and you just have the mental image of the book closes and the fairy tale that's another image that can be used and helpful.
that's closing the book of dualism, to put it in a uh, more jargon way of describing it. Or if you want to use a mantra, I have a very unconventional mantra that uh, I personally use, which is a little bit rude, but the mantra is bullshit. That's the way that it's appearing to me. This is bullshit. Yeah, this is not the way things are. You must have a similar word in Russian. Uh, if you translate literally bull and shit, we will have something... Uh, quite different. No, but do you have something <laughs> equivalent? Uh, well, yes, I think so. Like a chipucha in the end, given that. Right. So, something like that. These are ways that can help us. <laughs> the problem is to remember. <laughs> and the uh, time when it is uh, most uh, easy to identify the need for this uh, type of approach is when we're experiencing a very strong disturbing emotion. The one that is the favorite of the Tibetans is when you are falsely accused of something that you didn't do. Then very strongly, I didn't do that, what do you mean? You know, that I'm a liar or I'm a cheat or something like that. Then, you know, the strong sense of a solid me comes up the strongest. So that's the example that is found in the, te- in the Tibetan texts most frequently. You mentioned that one way to discipline our uh, mind and to go towards spiritual goals is meditation. But now we uh, hear this word from everywhere and uh, it means different things. And in Buddhism particularly, what uh, meaning this word's, uh, word has? And uh, can you maybe simply explain how to do it? Or if it is too uh, difficult, maybe you can just in general uh, explain the meaning of that. What is that? Meditation, literally, the Tibetan word means to make something a habit, to habituate ourselves to a beneficial state of mind. And it's done what is, done by means of what is usually called in plain language practice. And practice means repetition, doing it over and over again, like in a physical training. So it's a mental training, but not just an intellectual training, also an emotional training. And in Sanskrit, the word for it, the connotation is to become that. In other words, to make it happen. So you make it happen by habituating yourself so that it will naturally, automatically uh, occur, this beneficial state of mind. So there are many things that uh, would be beneficial to have all the time. There could be just a general awareness of what's going on all the time, so you focus on the breath as a way to gain that. Or uh, concentration, your mind isn't wandering or dull, that would be a very beneficial state of mind, so you have to practice it, try to do it over and over again. Or staying uh, in a particular state of mind, like an emotional state, love, compassion, patience, particularly when you have, uh, let's say, anger to practice blocking, not blocking, but uh, eliminating the basis for that anger by developing love and understanding or accustoming ourselves, habituating ourselves to stay focused on reality. So all of that, each of these uh, types of meditation are based on first Hearing, in other words, getting the uh, correct information and instructions, and gaining certainty that I got the correct instructions and I heard it right, and then uh, thinking about it until I understand what it means and I'm convinced that it is true and worthwhile for me to develop, and that I'm capable of developing the state of mind. The, uh, before was that it is inf- that it is correct. It is correct, and, and it is uh, worthwhile. Worthwhile to uh, do that. It is possible to do, and not just possible in general to but do. But I personally can do it. So that it's correct. That it's something that I would want to attain, and something that I can attain. And then meditation to generate this state of mind or uh, whatever it is that we're focusing on to generate it and to practice over and over again trying to stay focused with it. That's meditation. So being relaxed, quieting down, that is not the ultimate aim 
of meditation. That's sort of the initial state from which we would start. Yeah. So to just use meditation for uh, quiet, for getting relaxed, is liking uh, like the analogy that they use. It's like using a very sophisticated gun to uh, shoot cockroaches. I mean, you're using it for some very trivial reason. <laughs> It can help you to relax. Meditation can help you relax, of course, but you can use it for a much more significant uh, purpose than that. What other questions? Uh, you mentioned that there are Dharmic religions, and each of them says that there is a, some kind of problem. There is liberation from this problem, and of course, uh, each religion says that its methods are the best. And uh, could you explain what are the what is the specific of Buddhism from this point of view? Well, that's uh, correct. Each of these uh, Dharmic religions that I mentioned, Hinduism, Buddhism, and Jainism, are talking about gaining liberation from rebirth, uncontrollably recurring rebirth, and describe what a state of liberation would be like. And each of them says that the way to attain that liberation is through understanding of reality, the way that they describe reality. So Buddhism is it's completely within the context of an Indian religion. So what is distinctive about Buddhism are the Four Noble Truths. This is what Buddha taught. That the others might describe what is uh, suffering, but here is the true suffering. What Buddha saw is the true suffering, and the others might say that a certain type of unawareness is the cause of suffering, but hey, this is the true cause, true, uh, the deepest uh, type of unawareness. And this is the true stopping of suffering, what you might consider true stopping of suffering doesn't last forever, or it's not completely free. So this is the true one. And the understanding that uh, you say may get you to a certain state, but it doesn't take you all the way. So, now of course, the others will say the same thing back about Buddhism. So, one has to really investigate what is reality. Because, as we saw in our uh, verse here, that the whole foundation for the spiritual paths, and this is true, I think, in Hinduism as well as uh, Jainism, not just in the Buddhism, is the view of reality. And so that's what uh, has to be tested by logic and experience, understanding. So there is uh, a big difference between whether one is following a spiritual path for gaining liberation or one is following a spiritual path more in terms of becoming in this lifetime a kinder person, more compassionate, and uh, so on. So if you speak in terms of the attainment of liberation or enlightenment, then you can investigate that on the basis of uh, logic and debate and come to some conclusion as to which explanation is the most valid. But if we look at how the vast majority of people practice a spiritual path, it's not really aiming for liberation and enlightenment. They might say it is, but they have no idea what that actually means. And uh, really, they're following it uh, just to try to be a better person and improve their life in this lifetime, which is fine. Nothing wrong with that. So, in terms of that, when His Holiness the Dalai Lama was asked what, which is the best religion, he said the best religion is the religion that helps you individually to become a kinder and more compassionate person. So, for each person it's different. So, from that point of view, there's no real uh, debate as to uh, which is a more valid path for developing uh, compassion kindness, patience, forgiveness, these sort of qualities that it can be developed equally according to many different religions. So this is the basis for religious harmony. You had a question? We spend most of our time or 
quite a significant part of our time in dream. Is it possible to use this time to achieve enlightenment? Yes, definitely. There is something known as dream yoga. And uh, the point is to be able to recognize that one is dreaming without waking up in the process of recognizing it, which is the big danger here. And then within that uh, dream state, to uh, use that dream state for certain types of meditation that it's most conducive for. So on one level, the dream state is very conducive for doing the visualization practices in Tantra because you don't have any distraction from uh, the senses and uh, the visualizations that uh, you have are the most vivid. And the deeper use is to focus on the nature of the dream, which is that the dream appears to correspond to reality, but it doesn't. It's it's like an illusion. So it trains us to uh, recognize that appearances are like an illusion. The way that things appear to us in when we're awake, like the way that uh, they appear to us when we're asleep, don't correspond to the way that things actually exist. Although, what you do when in a dream and what you do when you are awake have very different consequences, so they're not exactly the same. Anything else? Yeah. Maybe just a short answer, practical answer. Okay. Thank you for reminding me that I give answers that are too long. It's a bad habit of mine. Um, the first question is in terms of uh, how to proceed with the spiritual path. For instance, in the Soviet Union, we had a five, in, in the Soviet Union, we had the five-year plan uh, for economical development. An unrealistic one. And maybe you can, in the same uh, way, give uh, the you know must-do for one or three or five years for people who just start their Buddhist practice. Maybe what books to read, uh, which meditation to practice, uh, maybe which pilgrimages to make. Um, this is the first question. In order to prevent ourselves from going astray. Well, the most uh, common and reliable way of uh, pursuing the spiritual path at least in the uh, traditions in which I was uh, trained, is uh, working through the Lamrim, the greatest stages. And there are many, many presentations of this that are available now, including in Russian, in books, on my website, etc. And here you have cumulative, step-by-step, what we need to uh, understand and digest and develop in order to progress on the spiritual path. Now, the traditional way of following it is that, uh, and this is the way that I learned it, because that was way, way back before anything was translated, was that uh, you just get one point and you have no idea what's coming next, and you have to work with it, and then you'll get the next point. So nowadays that's not possible because the whole path is laid out in books, so you can read the whole thing. But one needs to spend a significant amount of time with uh, each point, you know, even after you maybe saw, read the whole thing, to go back and work with each point and to see how it's interconnected with all the other points. And always remember that uh, progress is never linear. It always goes up and down. It's never going to be the case that it gets better and better each time you uh, meditate. So whether it goes well or it doesn't go well, nothing special about that. You just continue. No big deal. This was... uh, the reincarnation of my teacher's uh, favorite phrase is nothing special. There's nothing special about what you experience. It goes well, it doesn't go well, so what? So to set a five-year plan and so on, this is unrealistic because uh, for each person, the way that we make progress is different. However, this point of five years is what the Dalai Lama points out when he says, uh, how do you know that you've made any progress? It's, uh, you know, don't look day to day or month to month, but uh, look in terms of five-year periods, as an example, and compare how you deal with difficult situations now compared to five years ago. 
Are you more calm? Are you able to deal with difficulties in a uh, more relaxed way? That's an indication of progress. And uh, so this is the tradition in which I was uh, raised. And I should uh, mention that many other styles are there. For instance, doing a Nundro preliminary so-called preliminary practices in which you do 100,000 of uh, prostration and refuge formula and all these sort of things. And often that's the way that people start with a little bit of preliminary teaching. And I think that these uh, two approaches reflect the two ways of approaching the Dharma teachings that I've been explaining when you begin very early in your spiritual uh, practice this mundro these preliminary practices that's usually on the basis of inspiration from a teacher you meet a teacher you're very very inspired and you might not yet be convinced logically that it's possible to achieve the goal but because you're so moved by the spiritual teacher and confidence that what he's explaining will be beneficial, then you do it. You do the Lundro. That's fine. It works. The approach that I was trained with is more the approach that uh, I was explaining from this verse, one that the Dalai Lama himself uh, teaches usually, which is that first you gain conviction and understanding of the path, that it is possible, what the goal is, etc. And then you do the Lundro. And obviously, one can do a middle path between, you know, while starting early with the nundro, you uh, work to gain conviction in, you know, the possibility that the goal is attainable, or while you're doing this uh, study and practice, you can already start nundro. So there are different ways of putting them together. Uh, but I think that this reflects, if one really starts to think about it, how uh, the way that different uh, Tibetan teachers teach the Dharma that it fits within the structure that I was explaining, uh, which goes back to Nagarjuna. Right? The reference being how the two different ways of developing bodhicitta. First relative, then deepest, or first deepest, and then relative. So one has to uh, decide for oneself what suits oneself uh, best. So let's end here then. What, how we usually end the Buddhist teaching, which is a dedication. I think whatever understanding, whatever positive forces come from this may act as a cause for everyone to achieve liberation and enlightenment for the benefit of us all. Okay, thank you very much.